and welcome to Best Girl Grip, the podcast that celebrates the women behind the scenes of the British film industry. I'm your host, Nicole Davis. Hello, pod pals. Welcome to another episode of Best Girl Grip. In case you thought we'd wrapped up for season two, that's not true. I have planned four more episodes for your enjoyment and my enlightenment before we part ways for a brief respite. A few quick memos before I intro my guest for this week. Portrait of a Lady on Fire is currently out in UK cinemas and it is my favourite film that I saw in 2019 and I think it could be yours for 2020 if you go and see it. Uh, Like genuinely it is perfection, there are so many subtle and searing exchanges between the two leads who are clandestine lovers in the, I want to say, 18th century, and I will, uh, played by Noemi Merlant and Adele Henil. It's ravishing and radical and it's so knowing about the period in which it's set and does something uh, really clever with the period drama that felt very new and like something I hadn't really seen cinema do before. As you might be able to guess, I am a big Celine Siama fan. I don't think she's put a foot wrong in her career thus far and this is certainly her biggest and most majestic outing to date. Uh, So go and watch it, please and thank you. This particularly applies to my parents, who I'm not sure would go and see it normally, Um, but I think you should, guys. Second order of business, Uh, if you're in Glasgow for the film festival this week, I am doing a live podcast episode with the BFI's Lizzie Frankie on Friday the 6th of March at 1.30pm. Lizzie is a key figure in the British cinematic landscape and has had a really interesting career trajectory, so I'm very excited to sit down with her and as I say, if you're there, please do come along. Uh, Also, I am doing another live episode at the Water Sprite Film Festival for International Women's Day this very Sunday with Georgia Oakley, a rising writer and director. So if you're in Cambridge, get a ticket, they're free. I will link to the Eventbrite page in my show notes. So this week I spoke to Clarice Lockery, the chief film critic for The Independent. She also acts as a regular stand-in for Mark Commode on the BBC Radio 5 Live Commode and Mayo show and runs That Darn Movie Show, a weekly review channel on YouTube. We cover lots and a lot of it is new ground for the podcast because I've never interviewed a film critic before. Uh, So we talk about the art of pitching, how Clarice learned what a good freelance rate was, how she learned to trust her opinion and put it on the internet, uh, what her writing process is, the fear you get when your opinion of a movie differs from your peers and a fair bit more. Uh, which I think will hopefully be insightful not just for people interested in a career in film criticism, but also to anyone that reads film reviews, if that's not too audacious, Um, and and just, you know, the process that goes into that. Uh, So thank you so much to Clarice for sharing that perspective. Without further ado, this is episode 47 of Best Girl Grip. So did you go to university? And if so, what did you study? I did go to university uh, in Edinburgh and I actually studied ancient history because I just didn't, I didn't really know what I wanted to do at that point. And I loved film and I was thinking maybe I wanted to do something with film, but I think realistically I didn't know what that would be. I was maybe more interested in kind of the in front of camera, I don't know, like acting or writing or something. I just knew that I love film and I was like, okay, let me give myself like four years by going to university and just doing something else. And I think my other thing that I've always loved is history and specifically sort of on the more ancient side. So uh, that's why I chose Edinburgh. They also had cinema 
uh, Ancient World on film course. Mm. So I was like, okay, that's like best of both worlds. <laughs> <laughs> the blending of so, the two. So yeah, it was sort of a, I don't know, not, I don't know if it was the most wise choice, but it was kind of a, a, a panic moment because I just didn't particularly know not I didn't it wasn't that I didn't know what I wanted to do I just didn't know what was realistic for me I guess mm. and I suppose as well like yeah you mentioning sort of you wanted to maybe go into acting or writing and it's like those are the only roles that are like particularly apparent to you at like when you were younger about like what's to do with film did you feel that way at least yeah that's so true I, I had never considered writing like being a critical writing about film because I think a, I, I just wasn't, I don't know, like, I filmed Twitter, like, wasn't a thing <laughs> when I was graduating, uh, going into university, and, and I wasn't really aware of that whole culture. I knew, like, Empire Magazine, and I knew, like, Twitter Film, and I knew, like, those huge institutions, but, um, I don't know, I think I just wrote myself off in that respect. I was like, oh, I can't do that, because that's, like, for the buffs who know everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and assumed that if I wanted to work in film I would have to work like in film. And so how did you come back round to the idea of thinking that it was a career that you could access? I started writing for the school newspaper just as like a thing to do at that time. This is really embarrassing. (laughs) I was doing a lot of comedy and I thought I might want to do stand-up comedy uh-huh. or like sketch comedy please no one like google it or try and look it up it's really embarrassing that's a legit thing i did get very far because i was not good at it <laughs> this is the thing i always say like don't judge me because i know that i wasn't good <laughs> um and so that was like a route i was very serious about i was doing the edinburgh fringe every year performing <laughs> like yeah looking into that as a possible future I like idolized Kristen Wiig and I just wanted to be her maybe get on like Saturday Night Live that was still me being like very confused because I I just knew that I loved like that whole art form and and comedy and film and all those things together but yeah I just had that as like something to do because I thought oh why not I'll write some reviews and it was the backup for such a long time and I actually got an acting agent and started going to auditions, realized I hated it and I was really, really, really bad at auditioning because if you if you don't go to drama school, like the the way in is really to do like commercial auditions, which are horrific and so embarrassing. And the thing that was my little backup just kept growing and growing and and I realized that it was something that I was good at. And and so I sort of started emailing editors, the whole thing you do when you start mm. out as a film critic. You put a portfolio together and you email places and I don't know, it just kind of went from there. So I, I sort of fell into it in a way. So two things strike me about that. One is, was there a point or you, you just said, you know, you felt like you were good at it. Did that sort of realization come, you know, quite quickly or did it build up over time? And then secondly, when you say you were emailing editors, how were you finding their details? Because I know, like, you know, I used to get Empire and, like, you used to be able to see their names in the masthead, but it feels a bit more blurry now that maybe people don't have print magazines quite so much. Yeah, it was a lot of Googling. (laughs) It is, because it is quite hard, because I guess they do that on purpose, because they want to, like, test you. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) see how much you want. (laughs) You'll Google so much that you will eventually find that one page, like, buried somewhere deep within the website where Mm. it actually has people's contact details. I remember the first, well, the first sort of proper gig I got was 
Vice used to have a website called Grolsch Filmworks, which yes. was sponsored by Grolsch. Okay. So I actually can't remember whether they were advertising for Reiners or something, but I, yeah, I emailed the mm. editor of that, um, a guy called Oliver Lund, and I went in and did work experience for them. And so then that work experience turned into like a, a steady freelance gig. It was like, you know, X number of articles per month. Mm -hmm. um, and that was still at the time when I was still trying to act. <laughs> it's so embarrassing. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, there was a time where I was trying to do both at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I think because I had that steady gig, I was like, oh, maybe I can get more work. And I think I started emailing places like um, Little White Lies, because they had their contact details mm -hmm. like fairly accessible in the magazine and on the website. Um, so yeah, I just started emailing like the list and, and people like that. And it just sort of slowly grew from there because it's like once you get one person and they say yes, then you can use that credit to like influence, like convince another person to say yes by being like, hey, I wrote for these people. Mm -hmm. And it's it's one of those weird things where it just builds up very slowly and, and then it sort of grows mm -hmm. and grows and grows and then it's got the momentum and then you're off. Yeah. And were you asking to review stuff, or were you pitching features, or both? Like, what was your angle? Well, I was really bad at pitching at first, because I just came in, like, not knowing anything mm. about it. I didn't know anybody else who did it. But yeah, at first it was very, very generic, which I think now I would say it's better to go in with feature ideas, which I think is what I've learned since mm. then, because reviews are quite hard to pitch, because usually they've got somebody. Yeah. Uh, so it's so much easier to just go, um, hey, I've got this idea for this like really cool, interesting feature about this movie mm. that's really on topic and your readers will love. And it's almost like that's what can set you apart because you'll find your like voice or what you like to cover more so, I think, than perhaps pitching yourself for reviews. Yeah, and I think it, it lets editors sort of, you know, it's easy because it's like, hey editors, would you like this thing? Mm. And then once you write the thing and they can actually see how your voice fits into the website, then I think they're more likely to want to rehire you for stuff. I think it's much harder to sell yourself that way instead of being like, here's a really like tantalizing idea that's gonna get you readers and eyes and clicks and all the stuff, the good stuff that you want. How did you learn how to hone your pitching skills? You know, was Did you have a mentor or someone that you asked for help or was it just through trial and error? In terms of pitching, it was very much trial and error. I, I still think I'm terrible at pitching. <laughs> like, I'm really not good because I explain way too much and like I'm way too apologetic. I'm like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry I had this idea. Please, <laughs> pity on me. So yeah, I still think I'm very much in the learning process. I guess you just, you see what, how editors respond and like what they respond mm. to. And I think... I have been learning that you need to come in with like your idea like very strong. Mm. Like here's my idea, okay also this is who I am and here's all my stuff and you can click on this link and read this. I think that's been the thing that I've been slowly learning. And how do you get ideas or stories? Like where are they coming from and then how are you deciding, you know, is this right for this place or when's the right time for that idea, etc. Yeah, I I guess it's it's learning to like be aware of the news cycle because until recently I worked on a news desk and so mm. I was really seeing 
how quickly a story would come and go. It's something everyone would be talking about this one thing for one day and the next day it's like, sorry, who did what, what, what happened? So I think, yeah, for me, it's, it's trying to pounce on things really quickly and respond to, if there's a, a gap in the market for something going, oh, I see this movie's coming out and no one's taken this angle on it, right? Let mm -hmm. me jump on that before somebody else does. Because that's the thing, like, <laughs> you have to be quick, otherwise someone else is going to write that idea up and then you're going to be the second person to have had that idea. Mm. So it's interesting. It's, yeah, to me, it's very much about the speed and the, I usually try and pitch things to current releases because I'm not a very good, like, newsy newsy like hot take person right, right. so I try and, and look what's coming out and, and thinking about a different angle on something and trying to think right what is what's a take that no one has had on what's coming out soon invisible man yeah and I mean let's sort of backtrack a bit then and talk about so you were uh, freelancing at Grolsch alongside doing the acting and did that ever become like a full-time job and at what point did you start um, writing full-time? It took a really long time. Um, for a good few years I was freelancing and I was getting most of my money I would say from promotional jobs which is a very weird industry where it's that is also freelance and you basically go into stores like I would go into Boots and stand next to the electric toothbrushes and be like hi sir would you like to buy oh this toothbrush? <laughs> It was such a, an incredibly mm. weird job and I think as, as much as it sucked at the time, I'm kind of thankful for having that now because, I don't know, I think it, it, it's one of those jobs that you really get thrown into the deep end of like very weird situations and so now nothing phases me work-wise. Yeah, it has helped me like deal with the public, mm. <laughs> which is good for stuff because, you know, now a lot of um, being a film critic is like going on the radio and going on TV and being able to sort of just talk endlessly, which I'm doing terribly at now. But you know, it's like, it's strange that that is also now a required skill mm. in the job. It's, it's not just the writing section, it's sort of how you present yourself online and how you present yourself in person, how you present yourself like on TV and radio. And I think having had this job where I'm just constantly selling myself to strangers has been really helpful in that way because it, it it's sort of taught me a little bit about myself and how I come across to people and it's good for interviews as well because mm. I mean you think you know the celebrities but then it's like well these people have never seen you until now and it's like how am I presenting myself to these very famous and accomplished creatives mm. so yeah it was weirdly very helpful in a lot of very strange ways yeah is that something that you sort of noticed like that you've perhaps had to diversify your skill set you know it's not just writing as you say it's kind of interviewing at junkets maybe or, or going on the radio like was that something that came gradually or yeah I I mean I didn't really think that was part of the job until it became part of the job. I know that a lot of the TV and radio stuff was helped by the fact that I set up a YouTube channel, which was partially out of me going, oh God, how do I get people to notice me? Because it's hard because when you're trying to become a film critic and you're trying to go up against every other film critic who's also trying to become mm. a film critic and everybody's 
it's that thing it's hard to to kind of sell yourself when everyone's trying to do the same thing and when you're just trying to be like hi i'm a good writer it's really hard <laughs> to sell that to people who don't know who you are and so i set up the youtube channel with the logic of like well i used to you know be a comedian i'm a comedian and quotation marks and i used to kind of do acting so maybe if i could combine that and try and do video reviews that would at least set me apart in in some kind mm. of way and so i think that also ended up having a huge difference on my career because it actually did help me stand out because i mean obviously there's like a million different people doing youtube review channels but i think to have somebody who was doing that and then also trying to like have the professional writing career going to all these esteemed publications and going hey i do this but also i've got this side gig where i talk in front of a camera and like publications love that because it's like the youths like how well, do we connect to the youths <laughs> generation yeah like i think now. people Z-Y. like that yeah <laughs> i i think with the podcast like it's it's having something that you do off your own back and on a regular basis that sort of shows a discipline because it's, it's like a proof of concept isn't it that you can do the thing that you're pitching to people that you say you can do you know and you're it, people come to the youtube channel and be like oh yeah she can review oh yeah she can talk like very um you know concisely and insightfully about film yeah it's almost like like if somebody's everyone's like selling cakes <laughs> and you're like do you want just this like cake cake or like hey this cake has like sprinkles and decorations and marzipan flowers like <laughs> It's it's such a competitive industry that I feel like having even the smallest thing that sets you apart really does make people notice who you are and what you're doing. And let's talk about freelancing, because as you say, you, you kind of did it for quite a big chunk of time. And I'm wondering how you sustain yourself, um, you know, how do you made a living from that when you moved on from kind of not doing odd jobs uh, any longer? And how you knew how to like, ask what rave and that kind of thing. Yeah, the rate thing is really hard because different publications just have very different set rates. Mm. And I have found in my own experience that I'm often not asking for them. Publications will just be like, this is what we pay you. Yeah, okay. And you kind of just have to be the best judge of, is this going to be worth it? Right. I've just tried to go by reputation and approach places that I have heard mm. are a good at paying people a decent amount of money and just trying to avoid anything that has a reputation for not paying people good amounts of money mm-hmm. it's it's a tough one because you often only kind of know what the rate is once you've already pitched it and had the pitch accepted that they're like yeah. can you do it for this and then they're like and we'll also pay you this amount mm-hmm. so it's a tough one and sometimes like you do just agree to do a piece for a slightly lower amount of money because a, maybe it'll be easy, you can just whip it around in a slightly short amount of time, or maybe it's just something that's good for your profile, and it's like, well, this is going to boost me up in X, Y, Z different ways, mm. so, okay, I'll take a bit less money for it. It's incredible, yeah, it's a real, like, strange balancing act of just trying to not trip yourself up at all times. <laughs> Fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It sounds tricky, but also, how are you figuring out like how much you need to do in a month, say, to pay your bills? Like, did yeah. you, did you have a spreadsheet and say, I need to pitch like eight articles or whatever it was? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky because I've got my set contract as a reviewer for The Independent, so I know, like, okay, I've got X amount of money coming in each month, and then I just need, like, the extra amount of money on top of that. I'm also in, like, kind of a weird position, what kind of weird privilege position where, basically, this is kind of grim, but, like, because half of my family are dead, I got, like, quite a big inheritance. Right, um, okay. Well, actually, not that big. It was enough to, like, buy a tiny, tiny home in Brighton. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so I am in the privileged position of not having to worry about rent, which is obviously right. the biggest concern for any freelancer because it's this monthly payment that if you don't reach, you're mm -hmm. in huge trouble. So I only have to worry about kind of the smaller bills and smaller maintenance fees. So that's put me in quite a good position where I don't have to freak out too much about what exactly I'm getting each week because a lot of freelancing is very inconsistent like you'll have like a great month where it's like everyone's like every pitch is getting accepted everyone's approaching you for this and this and this and you're so busy and then you just have like a couple of weeks where it's like the dead zone mm. and nothing's happening and and that you know for anyone who's having to pay like a regular rent is terrifying and that's why I think it's it's so hard for people to do this job because if you don't have any kind of safety net like that, then like what happens if you're just having an unlucky two weeks? So like, and you're still based in Brighton. You live there now. Yes. Yeah. And what's that like? Because I know it can be quite like a capital-centered sort of industry, film, you know, business as well, but film journalism. Does that kind of uh, impinge on your lifestyle at all, or you found it to be okay? Yeah, it's been alright. I mean, this is boring. Like, the main problem is the trains are crap. Yeah. Um, and it is, yeah, it's always a little frustrating not to live in central London because of just, like, the timings of screenings. Like, if a screening ends really late and then it's like, oh, God, I'm going to get back at 1am. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's only practical things, and I think that does affect quite a lot of people who don't live in London. It's just that really annoying difficulty of like, if a screening is too early or too late, it's just like a pain in the butt. Mm. And also, you know, prices for train tickets. It seems quite bizarre though that like PRs and distributors don't offer regional screenings. Maybe some of them do if it's like a regional film and they want to get a more kind of local take on it. But it does seem still quite bizarre that it's so like focalised yeah. on London. It's hard because I know that like, obviously the PRs don't get like huge budgets mm. and you know I'm, I, I, don't, I personally don't know the practicalities of this but like yeah. I'm assuming it costs quite a lot of money to like hire out a screening room and, and so I'm imagining it's financially quite tough and and like frustrating for everybody involved because it's like we're all working in an industry that is always so tight with money I think I'm, I'm hoping that the entire culture changes in the future and studios put more investment into giving access because this, you know, you can do screeners as well, but I think a lot of studios are very reluctant to give out screeners because of like piracy issues, even though I don't think it's the critics that are pirating the movies. <laughs> and it's like to have the regional screenings, it's going to take like a, like a bigger change and to really have like the whole way that film criticism is viewed just to, to shift a little and be seen as, as this less sort of like tiny little bubble thing that happens in London and to be, yeah, more spread, but it's hard, yeah. And how did you come to The Independent? Because it's quite rare now to have someone that's sort of a regular critic, but you know, there are maybe a handful of names that I know of where it's like week upon week they review for the same paper. So yeah, how did you come to that job? 
Uh, so I worked on the Independence General Culture Desk for a few years before I got the specific film critic job. Mm. Um, and that involved a lot of different things. There was news and interviews and features and some reviews as well across all types of culture, which was scary because I, <laughs> I mean, I like all kinds of culture, but like, I don't know anything about music. And like, they, they sent me to review an art gallery mm. and I just went in being like, I don't know what I'm meant to do. Do I take notes about the art? How long do I look at the art? And so I think it was just a process of like having done that for a few years, it maybe became obvious to them that like my one skill was like the reviews, the film reviews specifically. And and so I sort of, yeah, just got, got the offer and they were like, hey, like we know you're really passionate about this and this is what you want to do. Do you want to become the new film critic? And I said, yes, please. I would love that. <laughs> and did that feel like quite a big step up for you? Like, did you have that moment of being like, oh my God, I'm, I might have made it? Yeah, because I, yeah, that was like always my end goal. I mean, I'm not a super, super ambitious person. I know people are like, oh, what about your own TV show? Yeah. And I was like, I would just really love to just write about films and that's my job. Mm. And now it is. And it's like very surreal. Yeah, it's really surreal. <laughs> and I mean, let's talk about how it works there, because it, if you're writing for a national newspaper, are you then, you're allowed to pitch to other places and kind of have your name at other publications? Yeah, so I have signed, like, my, I have signed a very specific contract saying that all written reviews are the independent, so I can't go and write reviews for other places. Mm. But anything else, features, interviews, podcasts, and like TV, radio, da, 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 is all fine. So, because but presumably it's quite good for them in perhaps the long run. Because I know I, I kind of tend to read based on the writer as opposed to the publication now, particularly with film, because you um, you tend to sort of align yourself with someone whose tastes match your own. So you know, if if you start writing for another another paper, I wouldn't necessarily just stay for the independent. I would I would read Clarice's review because I know that I, I agree with a lot of what you say, for instance. So like, you know, perhaps it's good for them to for other people to see you elsewhere and then come to the independent as a result of that. Yeah, I think they've always been very pro like yeah, pro those ideas of of establishing your reputation because it is such a reputation based business now. Mm. And so I think it's it's great for them when I get to, you know, go on BBC Radio and and they get to say, this is Chris Lockery, the chief film critic at The Independent. I mm. mean, that's it's great because it's like free advertising, but it's also yeah, just sort of getting my name out there, which is, it is really weird because it's not, I think, again, maybe that's the thing that's changed is that you used to just read like whoever the critic for The Guardian was. Mm. And now it's like, oh, I'm going to read like, you know, Peter Bradshaw at The Guardian. It's, yeah, 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 it's really interesting. Perhaps it comes back to that personal brand thing though, that we were talking about earlier, where it's much more about who you know and who you follow on Twitter and, you know, that kind of thing, as opposed to, the yeah, the loyalty to the paper, because we don't, I personally, our generation, don't go out and buy papers as much. Yeah, and I think it's like, culturally, we are shifting to a more weird individual, focus on the individual as opposed to the the organization they represent. I think if you look at the growth of YouTube, it's because people now want to hear from, oh, what does this person have to say about makeup? What does this person have to say about movies or music? They don't necessarily want to know what, yeah, some organization has to say about it. It's, 
it has a lot to do with the internet and the way that every person now has their individual voice and some sort of weird amalgamation of how that has changed and shifted media and and just sort of brought everything down to to an individual voice. And what's that like for you? Because obviously as a critic, you're putting your opinion out there and saying, this is what I think about a film. And obviously it's an opinion. So not everyone yeah. is going to agree with it. <laughs> um, and, you know, not all of the independence readers are going to agree with it. Um, do, you, do you sometimes face criticism? And how do you, how do you take that? I don't know. You, you just try and laugh it off if anyone's being weird about it, I guess. <laughs> you know, like, it's... The nice thing about Twitter is that you get to hear most people are like really cool and and kind and appreciative about things and if they don't if they don't agree they'll you know voice it in a nice respectful one often like very interesting way where you go oh yeah that's a great point i hadn't thought about that was it also a learning curve for you though to sort of say this is my opinion and it's it's worthy of being independent and it's you know it not that it's the right one as say but you know it's a take that is valid on the film I'll leave. Yeah, I mean, I still have huge imposter syndrome, like, every day. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard to to be confident about that, and I think I really, really struggle with it. I just have to do it, I guess. It's weird. You just have to do it, because that's your job, and then all the, the worrying and the insecurity and the, like, crying, boo-hoo, I suck, I can't do this. You just leave it until after you've written the review and set it <laughs> off, and then you just go cry in the corner. And, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I, I too much really struggle with it. I'm still finding the confidence to just, yeah, state an opinion and be fine with it and just be like, if anyone disagrees, well, that's their problem. When you get the direct criticism and the trouble, when you get, like, trolling and mean stuff i find that way easier to brush off when you just as opposed to i don't know when you write a review and like you're the only positive review and everyone else hates it i mean that's harder to mm. to deal with because that's like the respect of your peers and the people that you know you really look up to and it's like oh god why do they all have a very different opinion to me like that's the tougher thing i think like random people on the internet yelling at you because you didn't like the joker is like that's its own thing and I think that for me I just hit block and I would carry on with my life like when you're trying to find your place in this industry and trying to find your voice and trying to be confident in your voice in this industry that for me is the the really tough thing and that's not to say like obviously all these other critics are really nice and accepting and and it's nothing to do with them it's all my brain it's like it's highly my brain just not thinking that I'm good enough to be part of that world but yeah, I mean, it's it's a me problem. It's not an industry problem. But it's you know, <laughs> it's a problem, even if you're yeah. just an audience member and you come out and you, you, you're talking with a friend about what you saw and they're like, oh my God, I love that. Like, that was that was so great. And you're like, what am I not seeing? Like, no. I, I, did, I didn't. Like, what, like, what, what am I, I missing? I'm yeah. dumb, dumb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, that's such a tough thing because you just... It's weird because film criticism and, and responses to film, even when you're not mm. doing it as a job, it's so tied into like, I don't know, like intellectualism and how you see the world and how smart are you, how empathetic are you, and it's it's hard that you you worry because you know it's like oh is my taste like sophisticated enough, uh, you know, am I criticizing the right things in a movie or am I just you know enjoying the bang bang punch punch movie too much because it's just doing that I don't know it's yeah it's a lot of different emotions swirling around 
And how many reviewers are there at the independent, you know, freelance and employed? And how do you decide who reviews what? Because I think that's quite a big debate at the moment. It's sort of making sure that maybe more women are reviewing films by women, etc. So I don't do any of the deciding stuff, (laughs) which is good for me because I'm bad at deciding. So um, I just write the stuff and then I submit it. So I do my three reviews a week Mm -hmm. and I sort of decide. I mean, my editor has the final decision of what I review and then I just go off and I write those. I think in terms of the like other culture places, we have different reviewers um, and a different system and different people writing different things. Sometimes we get in other reviews to write film reviews, especially if it's a film festival to get other voices in. Mm -hmm. But um, in terms of what I do, I just write my thing. So it's like you're, you know, say there's five films out that week. You know, that's quite rare. But you know, you can you, can you say like, oh, maybe I should review the new Kathy Yan, or you know, maybe I should review this, or it kind of doesn't work in that pick and choose kind of way. Yeah, it's I like I I kind of suggest what might be good to cover. Mm-hmm. So I'll like maybe suggest my three choices, and then I'll see what my editor says. He might have a, a different view because he wants, he specifically wants this film covered, or maybe doesn't want to cover this film. Mm. Uh, it's it's tricky because in this industry, that's the tough thing about this industry, is that obviously you want to spotlight the great movies that you want people to know about, and which are smaller, and, and it's balancing that with also making sure that you're like covering the new Marvel movie, and covering the new James Bond, mm. and trying to get that balance right, where you can promote the things that are worthy of promoting and also make sure that you're getting the traffic at the end of the day. I think that's been the thing that, you know, I know that I struggle with when suggesting the movies and that my editor struggles with when, like, choosing the movies to cover. So it's, yeah, it's a tough one. And what's your process as a writer? When you see a film, are you, like, taking notes or do you kind of store it in your memory and then jot it all down afterwards? How does that work? Lots of notes because I have a very poor memory, especially for dialogue. So I will spend a lot of the movie just scribbling any lines that I felt significant, any images. Like if I see something really cool in the movie, I'm like, oh God, okay, I want to remember that. Because I feel like if I don't write stuff down, I'll just come out and be like, oh, I've forgotten the entire movie. Great. Mm. So I know different people have different, different approaches, but... For me, it's like, I hope one day I'll get to the point where my memory is good enough where I don't have to do that, but at the moment, no. I just think it was Guy Lodge I saw on Twitter that was like, he doesn't, he writes notes, but he never uses them. It's just to like plant the seed. So like writing it down just helps him like, as you say, like remember something. And do you feel like you have a reviewing style and like, how have you honed that across the years? Oh, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. Because I think like, your voice also has to be in tune with your editor's perspective so I think when you're writing for a publication in the long term you have to find a way that both reflects what you want to say about the movie and reflects the publication that you're writing for so I think that's been the really interesting thing about working for The Independent is that I had had a history of you know writing for Little White Lies and other publications like that and they have their own style they have quite long form reviews often and uh, The Independents are shorter and a bit tighter and I think are focused more on sort of standout imagery and and the real sort of I'm I'm sort of like learning to have fun in really like evoking things and and trying to find the right words to really really put an image inside of someone's head instead of just going the film is good because of xyz reasons Mm -hmm. um 
Yeah, that's been, I think it's always an ongoing process because I, every reviewer changes and, and matures or like goes in a different direction as, as they progress throughout their career. Do you get the opportunity to sort of write in like different ways? Is that what freelancing kind of offers you? Because, you know, with reviews, I've written very few, but it just sort of felt like sometimes it could get quite stayed. When you're re- reviewing something, you can sort of stick to the same structure over and over again. And I'm wondering how you perhaps keep writing fresh or you, you keep curious about that process. It's, yeah, a little bit of experimentation goes into it. It's hard because you, you know that you have to have a great opening you have to have a really good closing line and then you have to have the plot synopsis somewhere in the middle usually like nearer to the top and it's hard because you you can't realistically really go too far out of that because it's going to make the review unreadable if you like don't describe what the movie is or if you like start your review with like I don't know some giant essay or or something like weird and dense and you know you have to have a really eye-catching opening otherwise no one's going to read the review but I think within that, I do try and and always mix it up a little bit, especially like, you know, how do you open the review? You don't always want to go in straight with like, this movie is the third film by my... <laughs> like, it's, it's finding, I guess, the little ways, like the small ways that a review can can be different or, or stand out or do something a little bit different. And is there anyone that you read, um, or you, whose reviews you love to read, as sort of like inspiration? Oh, I try and read, kind of everybody, because I think it's it's less about finding inspiration. Because I'm always conscious of like, oh, I don't want to be like copying anybody because mm. that's that feels bad. But I I try and just read like, well, like Robbie Collin and Guy Lodge, uh, but also like Simran Hans. Uh, and I think I, I read a lot of US critics as well. Maybe it's just because I'm from mm. the US and I'm, I graduate. A little, I don't know. I just kind of want to go see what they're talking about. Uh, but people like Justin Chang, I love uh, LA Times, like a lot of LA Times and New York Times and all the Times is. Mm, yeah, Manila is like yeah. always on point. I know Manila's so good. Like Stephanie Zarek at Time, mm. I love her. She, like, in terms of like people using vivid imagery, like she's so good at doing that. So. I try and, and just absorb a lot of stuff without, like, I don't know, like, idolizing anyone, because then I, I worry that I'm just going to start trying to become them, <laughs> and just become, like, the second-rate Stephanie Zarek, and I just don't want to do that. And are there any, like, words that you stay away from that you're like, oh, God, I can't, like, write that about? Because I feel like there's some lingo that gets overused to describing a film. Do you have sort of, like, a hit list that you're like, no? I try not to do the, like, overrated, underrated... Cause that's hard because mm. it's it's like well I don't know what people are talking about outside of my tiny bubble so like, yeah. and it's hard for I feel like sometimes it's hard for stuff to be underrated now because we have Twitter and it's like someone out there is always like bigging up a movie out there mm. so I I don't want to be pompous and present myself as the champion of a film when obviously I'm not going to be the only person so I try and avoid that I try to be careful with words like masterpiece because a masterpiece seems like a word you can only use like two decades after the movie has been made so (laughs) I try yeah I I try and avoid those like those words that are so great for the poster and you almost want to use them because part (laughs) of like a very secret selfish part of you wants to be on the poster so but I try and avoid stuff like masterpiece best film of the year Mm. and I'm sure that I 
do it and I break my rules all the time. Is it also important to sort of write in a way that's accessible, perhaps particularly for the independent, because I've I've spoken to quite a few people on this podcast now and some of them talk about not thinking that they were they were smart enough or not thinking they knew enough about film to do their job, whether it's writing about film or, you know, whatever it is. But it, it, that seems particularly pertinent perhaps to criticism. Um, and I think it's possibly good for aspiring writers to see people kind of write in an accessible way about film and think, I could do that. Yeah, I try not to do the thing of, like just going, oh, this movie is like this other movie and this director is like this other... And and just name-dropping a bunch of other works or, or names because I, I feel like that could potentially be quite alienating because I don't want to write just for, you know, hardcore cinephiles, people who want... I want to write for everybody and I want, like, my dad to pick up my reviews, my dad who, like, you know definitely not a set of vile <laughs> but like you know I want a review that he can read and, and understand and yeah I also try and I'm conscious of trying to to bring in lots of other things to try and not just look at how it connects how a film connects to other films but maybe how a film connects to history how it connects to art how it connects to I don't know something social or psychological going on so that there might always be there'll always be something that a reader can can jump into and go oh yeah that helps me understand it because like I know this painting (laughs) like here's this famous painting that I know and this is what the film looks like instead of always trying to find the same reference points and trying to fit movies into the same established canon I guess which is that's the other thing is like you don't I'm always conscious of not contributing to the very stiff idea of like that the cinematic canon and how does this how can we squish this into this little box so that's the stuff that I try to avoid Mm. yeah like being like he's the new Coppola or like you know the new Tarantino or yeah she's the new Lena Dunham etc yeah it's hard because then you it's like well A if someone's like someone's not a Coppola fan then you have immediately turned them off that movie Mm. when actually it might be a movie they'd love but they just they that they will like things about that movie that they don't like about Coppola. It's hard. Like the second you start obsessively comparing everything to everything else, I think you end up doing the films themselves a disservice. And has that ever been an issue? Like I know sometimes filmmakers can kind of um, have a go at critics and be like, "You've ruined my chances of like box office success." Like, have you ever felt that, or like a sense of responsibility for a film? Yes, yeah, I always write with the assumption that the person's never going to read it, because, like, I don't write, like, yeah, I don't write for a director, I would never want a director or an actor or anybody involved in the film to read my reviews, because it's like, I'm not here to tell anybody how to do their job, Mm. I'm here to, to help us discuss the movie and to help us see it in a different way, and... Sometimes that's negative, sometimes that's positive. I feel like, as a hard and fast rule, directors and actors and everybody should not read the reviews. Just like, if you win an Oscar, it should be like a surprise. Like, oh my god, people like my movie? What? Like, that's the okay. thing. Like, don't read the review, don't Google your name. Like, publicists, don't, I don't send them any reviews. Yeah, I don't yeah. care if it's good. Just like, keep them away from it. Just say nice things about their movie. I don't know. And are there any other skills that you think make someone good at this job? Obsessiveness and, like, just not having a life. 
<laughs> outside. I don't know, because I guess... As in obsessiveness about cinema, like attention to detail to the... Yeah, or just like getting the thing done. Yeah. Because it's hard sometimes when, especially you have to have a really quick turnaround where maybe you saw a film uh, that night and the embargo breaks like 6am the next morning. Like you have to have that really... And I think I've got that very, like, stressed out, anxious, driven need to just, like, get the thing done mm. and then I can go to sleep. I think it's, maybe it's just a, a dedication or a, a a drive, but I don't know if it's even drive. It's just, like, a, an ability to switch on the panic mode and just go, ah, okay, I've done it. Now I don't have to worry about it anymore. Is that particular to festivals as well, where it's sort of the turnaround is quite tight? And off the back of that, have you ever rewatched something and then disagreed with your own review? Yeah, um, I don't think I've ever rewatched something and been like, oh, I was completely wrong. But I think your relationship with the film does always change over time. And and you might have had very, I don't know, you know when you have really, really passionate feelings about a movie, positive or negative, mm. and then you rewatch it like five years later and it's like, oh... <laughs> this movie was fine (laughs) like either way like I don't know why I got so angry or so you know passionate about this movie and yeah how does it work with festivals and that you're sort of you have to do it straight away like and it's you know out the next morning and is that always conducive to perhaps like not the best take but you know like it can be hard to be thoughtful or pensive about a film when you know that you've got a deadline looming yeah I've not I've not done too many festivals yet um I think even when you're not doing festivals, sometimes you do have like two hours too, and that is really yeah, it's really hard because I am a person who likes to sleep on stuff. Like every decision I make in my life, I like to sleep on it because <laughs> you're having that restfulness and having that little bit of distance from something is so helpful to let you see it in perspective. And I guess it's like I said before when you like the extremity of the motion the emotion always lessens over time I would say and you know you can come out like I don't know like I'm I'm such a huge Star Wars fan and coming out of the last Star Wars film mm. like I had so many emotions and they were like positive and negative and I had knew I had to go and sit down and immediately write a review <laughs> And for one of the biggest movies of the year that everyone was going to be talking about for months afterwards and that I barely had a conversation with anybody about it. And it's like, right, (laughs) how do I distill all these complicated, weird feelings into, like, five paragraphs and just decide on a definitive take on this very complicated, weird movie that has, like, so much press around it. It's, yeah, it's really tough and I think not... Great. I mean, obviously for festivals and sometimes for big movies, you understand why they have to have such a quick turnaround for things. But I think the long run, it doesn't always make for the best reviews. Mm. And is there a piece of writing that you're particularly proud of? Like, I don't This is maybe isn't my, my favourite piece of writing, but I think a really memorable moment for me that really sort of tied up my career in a nice way is that uh so when I used to do stand-up comedy I went to see Bo Burnham's show What at the Fringe Festival Mm. and it was so good that I sort of immediately lost all enthusiasm for it and that was basically when I quit comedy and decided 
I don't want to do this anymore. And so then when Bo Burnham also quit comedy and went and made eighth grade, it was really interesting to interview him about it and and get to write out that interview. And, and then he sent me a very sweet message about it afterwards just to say thank you. Like, that was a great interview. And I think getting that message felt like that, you know, like that really nice, like, full circle moment yeah, like everything just yeah. like fit <laughs> everything's just like fitted into place i was meant to do this Bo, you were meant to do this we're all on our right <laughs> so we could have right this now. interview yeah <laughs> yeah like it was so weird like just getting that message was like oh yeah like we're both okay mm. <laughs> we're doing the things we're doing the things we're both doing the things like yeah that was for me like a very treasure and that piece will always be very close to my heart forever now and is there a myth that you want to bust about being a film critic? Oh, that we're that we're not the fans. I that thing about mm. oh, we made this for the fans, not the critics. And, like I find very hurtful because I am really no different from any moviegoer. Like I find it weird that there is any kind of separation. The only thing that separates us is that I go and watch the film talk about it with my friends or maybe talk about it with myself <laughs> and then I go write down the thoughts I mm. think there's nothing different in that process I mean yeah I see a lot more movies than maybe the average person but I don't think that's personally that's changed my approach I still get excited about the same stuff that I used to like I get surprised by things I didn't think were going to mm. be good it's yeah it's such a, a strange and I think very harmful narrative to try and I don't know, it makes us like, well, I don't know, it makes it out like we're aliens or something. It's or like, against film yeah, like, making kind of how, yeah, how, business. And speaking of fandom, is there something that you've seen recently, it can have been released a while ago, um, that you're a particular fan of, uh, but you think that is undervalued and not enough people have seen? I don't know, can I shout out something that's coming out? Yeah. That I'm it. worried that might go a little bit under the radar, but Rocks by Sarah Gavron, I saw a few weeks ago and it's so great and so lovely and basically I won't go through the whole story of the movie but um, it was created through a very collaborative process with the actors and the writers and the director all working together to create this story about a teenage girl and her friends living in East London and it's like it's funny and lively but also really sad and sweet in parts that it just feels like such a complete experience and I love movies like that I love movies that feel like they capture the entire breadth of human experience which is you know it's all about the ups and downs and I think any movie that hits the nail on the head when it comes to that is just like perfect for me so thank you for that recommendation <laughs> and thank you for this interview it's been so interesting yeah Thank you for listening to this episode of Best Girl Grip. If you liked what you heard and found it interesting, I'm pleased to say there is plenty more where it came from and you can browse the archive at your leisure on iTunes, Spotify or Acast. And if you really, really liked what you heard, leave a review. I'm told it's meant to spread good pod karma. Have a good week.